This podcast is a ministry of Christian Life Center in Berwyn, Illinois. Our goal is to create a real faith for the real world, and we hope this helps you grow. For more information at Christian Life Center, visit us at our website, www.berwynag.org. Thank you. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. And uh, talk about an irony here, I guess. This, uh, I want to talk about divine healing for the next few weeks here. It's been on the schedule long before anything else was going on in my life. So I'm just laying that before you so that you can uh, know that I think it's something we need to begin to really be hanging in there and believe in God for miraculous healings in the, in the services. And we're believing God for powerful moves of his spirit in our midst. And so we should know what it is that God has for us. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. The last portion of that this shows the, the purpose and the reality that, that Paul had when he was ministering to people, <clears throat> especially when he was bringing the gospel to new towns as he was going there. So tonight what I want to do is I want to take a look at four different um, theological hindrances to uh, believing God for healing, four stumbling blocks that keep us from believing God for his healing purpose in our midst. So when you're ministering to someone, laying your hands on them, or I'm laying hands on someone, the theological things, the things that we believe, are uh, they're, they're, uh, they're the stumbling blocks that keep, keep us from really hanging on to what God is doing in, in the purpose, what God's pur- purpose and will is in that person's life. So we come here tonight and we, we, we think, what's the first one? The first one is, this idea of sanctification through sickness. It's a theological blind spot. It's like, it's like believing that somehow God is going to use a sickness to, to sanctify you and make you more holy. But in reality, that's not at all what sickness is about. In fact, sickness, uh, sickness has, no, has no relevance to, otherwise the, the, the holiest place in the world would be the cancer ward, right? But it's, not, it's frequently not the cancer ward. So, in fact... <clears throat> To, to believe that is to believe uh, that you are better than God. To believe, to believe that, because that, I don't know a single one of us parents in here who would bring our child and take that child and bring that child into purposely put them in contact with some heinous virus and let them get that virus in them to teach them a lesson. Anybody in here want to expose your child to some, some horrible sickness so that they'll learn their lesson? I don't think so, right? But so to claim that God sanctifies us by sickness is basically to say that God is abusive to his children. You get what I'm saying? Is that we're saying that we, there's something we would never do, but we, let, we, we think we have no problem believing that God would do that. In fact, recognizing this... It, 
helps us to get our head on straight that, that Jesus came and healed as it, everywhere he went. He came and healed people so that they could experience the power of God and so that they, it could confirm the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we believe in healing. We, we don't believe in healing because it makes a philosophical sense or because it because it's, uh, it's a good and pleasant thing and a, and a pleasant thing to believe when you're not feeling well. What we believe in healing is because the Scripture theologically tells us that, that Jesus came to heal, that the Son of Man came to, to, to make men right, that, that He didn't come to, the, to the, the well, but rather He came to the sick, and he came because the, it's the sick that need a physician, that the Son of Righteousness arose with healing in His wings, that God is a God whose benefits we should not forget. And one of those benefits is he heals all my diseases. And, those, and when we recognize all the truths that are repeated, uh, God said in, in Exodus 15 that he was Jehovah Rapha, the God that heals us, that, that, uh, that none of those diseases would come upon us as we walk in the way of the Lord. That as we, as we uh, go through the, the motions of living our life and doing the things that God would do, we believe that God is intimately involved in our life in such a way that he cares about whether we're hurting. We see Jesus walking around. The image of God, Hebrews chapter 1, tells us that Jesus is walking around the very image of God. At one point, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So what does God think about sickness? Well, God thinks that about sickness, that, that it's something that needs to be cured. And Jesus looks with compassion and pity on people who are sick, and he reaches his hand out, not in some impotent way to, to kiss their boo-boo, but to, to radically transform them and to heal their body, right? That's what Jesus does. And so when, when Jesus operates like that, he, he operates with, specifically to teach us what God's will is regarding the healing purposes of God. So um, we, we see... Uh, sometimes sanctification coming out of sickness. That doesn't mean that God sent the sickness there to make somebody better. It just means that God sometimes uses the circumstances in our life to provoke something on the inside of us. You know, sometimes when you're sick, you're home with the flu, you're laying down on, the, on your bed, you're saying, okay, God, what did I deserve to do this? You know, and you make a mental note. You know, maybe I'm going to wash my hands more frequently this winter, you know, so I don't get this sickness ever again. You, you make, you, you make the, those notes, but you recognize the power of God, that, 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 that this, the roots of this idea that somehow that God sanctifies us through sickness is, is poisonous because it, help, it makes us misunderstand the entirety of Scripture. Uh, today's uh, sanctification through sickness movement sometimes uh, continues to suck the life out of God's moving by the power of his Holy Spirit. So let's look at some biblical examples of sanctification through sickness, okay? What people will say when they're the modern day, when they say, oh, you know, we're going to, uh, we're, this, this is why we believe this, because it says it in the Scripture. Let's look at those verses of Scripture they use. First one they use is Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, and, and certainly there's something to be said here. Acts 9, verse 1, we read about the Apostle Paul, and he is out busy, uh, working to, to, to crucify and to capture uh, Christians because he's not a believer yet. He is Saul, and it says in verse 1, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. And so 
it, that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which is what they used to call Christianity back then, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, and they heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So here certainly is a, is a blindness that comes upon Saul, right? It comes upon Saul, and, it, and it's clearly sent by God. We're all in agreement. You all agree that that sickness came from God on Saul. Now you can't, there's no non-committal. You, you, either be, you believe God sent that sickness on Saul. Raise your hand if you believe that. Okay. How many of you believe God didn't send that sickness on Saul? 100%? Everybody believes God sent the sickness on Saul. Okay. So does, is this God using sickness to sanctify Paul? Hmm? Seemingly. Seemingly. Except that God sends this sickness on Saul while he's unbelieving, Right? For what purpose? To get him saved. And then immediately, what does he do? He sends somebody there to lay hands on him to heal the blindness, as if, he's, as if God's saying, you've been spiritually blind all this time, and I want to show you how blind. You can't see a, a, a darn thing. And so now when you give your life to Jesus, I'll bring somebody along who will pray for you, and you'll be healed from this blindness. So while we can look at that, we recognize that's not what God, that God's not specifically uh, targeting people so that they'll experience uh, sickness so that they can become more holy. But I'll tell you what, when the doctor walks in and he tells you, we don't know what this is, we want to take another look at it, you start getting holy right away. <laughs> right? You're like, you, you start praying prayers you never prayed, or you pray a little bit longer, you start reading your Bible a little bit more, that's what happens. It, it's 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 a part of the instinct that's on the inside of every single person. We were talking about this the other day in my office and a couple of the brothers, and we, and we were talking about how there's not a single group of people on the earth, no tribe, no nation, no, no uh, group of kindred people that doesn't have a God that they believe in. Now, we have atheists in our day and age who have talked themselves out of a God, but... It, but Tribal people all around the world all believe in a God. Every single, not always the same, the right one, but they believe in, in a God because there's a hunger on the inside of us that longs for God. And God is busy trying to bring people to himself. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 31, Paul warns the Corinthian church that they should esteem the body specifically. Because if they don't, this is, he's talking about specifically during communion. Uh, because if they don't, then they may get sick. In verse 27 it says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. If any man, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread or drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats or drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. 
But if we judge ourselves, we will not come under judgment, he says. So this passage here telling us that God's purpose and plan is, is, is to uh, be honored in the midst. Now, notice, now I personally believe when he says that anyone who eats or drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself, he's not talking about the cracker that you're eating that's an uh, emblem. He's talking about the body of the Lord that's around you. He's just gotten done rebuking them and saying, saying to them, hey, listen, you, you, know, you, you should eat it all together at the same time rather than people come and trying to snarf food from each other and, 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 and steal food from each other's plate. He's saying, or, or be, being uh, longing for food and being hungry. and Rather, everyone should partake together because when you do that, you're looking at the body the way it is. These are your brothers and sisters, not just somebody else who happens to be at this address the same evening, but rather this is, this is something that the Lord is, is speaking to them. So he said, and when you don't, won't, don't look at people or don't look at the body of Christ rightly, then sickness and death even comes upon people for not rightly looking at the body of the Lord. And of course, we think of Ananias and Sapphira in, in, in chapter 5 of the book of Acts who don't rightly uh, view the, 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 Lord, the body of the, of the Lord as the temple of God and the pe- place where the Holy Spirit dwells. You see, if you lose the, the, the understanding that this is a place, a holy place where, the, where we expect to meet God, if you stop having a hopeful expectation as you enter in. If you no longer anticipate that you're going to meet God in this place, then, and then, then you, can, you can actually bring uh, condemnation upon yourself. But clearly, this purposes of these things are not, you don't kill somebody in hopes that they'll change their ways. Right? right? Once you kill them, right? They're dead, right? They're dead, so there's nothing there. So, so uh, we hear sometimes people talking about their sicknesses. Oh, this is a cross that I have to bear. And that sounds really biblical, doesn't it? It's a cross I have to bear. And Jesus did say that we should take up our cross and follow him. Yeah, when Jesus was saying, take up your cross, the burden of the cross is not that you have a cold. The burden of the cross is not that you walk with a limp or that you're, you have hip dysplasia or something like that. The burden of the cross is the fact that you're carrying upon, upon your own life now the name of Jesus, and so people are looking to you, and so it has nothing to do with the, the burden of sin. Not that sickness isn't a burden, but, but it is, that has not, no sanctifying process that's intended by God in there. Sickness is, uh, is a test, no doubt, but, and sanctification can certainly come through sickness because uh, Romans 8.28 tells us that God, that, that God can glorify himself in every way through our life, right? But, but the purposes of these things aren't there. In fact, in all the places where the term suffering is used in the Bible, all 65 times in the New Testament that it's used, only once does it actually refer to sickness. Every other time it refers to uh, something that is, uh, that is uh, a persecution that's worked against that person. Uh, every time the term suffering is used in the New Testament, it's used to refer to this persecution. The one time that it's used to refer to a sickness is in Matthew 17, verse 15. And that sickness that that woman is suffering is ascribed to her as being given, not by God, but by a demon. And so 
this clar- begins to clarify where does sickness come from. A sickness comes from the demonic work of sin in the world all around us. And so uh, rather, than, rather than believing that, oh, I'm sick so that I can be made holy, you're sick so you can be made so God can be glorified through the healing process of your sickness. That's the that's the way that God wants to to work in your life. How do we know that? Because uh, there's two different ways to handle. If you're going through a trial, what does James say in chapter one, verse two? James says very simple: consider it pure joy when you go through trials, right? Because now those are trials. Talking about suffering for Jesus, to being persecuted. Those are oh, that kind of suffering. Consider it pure joy. But then he says in chapter 5, same guy, same book, just a few chapters later, he says, if you're sick, what does he say? Call the elders of the church, right? That's what you're supposed to do if you're sick. So he gives two, if you're suffering in one capacity because you're being persecuted, then, then for sure count it joy because you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Sometimes because of uh, the Middle Ages, we have these, this whole concept of, beating yourself or flagellating. Sometimes you see movies, you know, the monks flagellating themselves, beating themselves to cause suffering, believing that the whole concept there was believing that somehow the suffering made for sanctification. But clearly, no one in this room believes that. Because if you really, really believe that all the way to the hill, then the next time you got a headache, you would not take an aspirin. You would not take a Tylenol. You would not. If you believed, I'm going to be holier for this headache. Hallelujah, I have a headache. Then you would not take any medication. And yet all of us, if the headache gets severe enough, will eat some Tylenol or some ibuprofen or some aspirin or something like that. Because we know that the purpose of I don't get holier when I don't feel well. I get grumpier. And my wife can testify to the fact that when I'm not feeling well, I am not God's man. I'm her sick little boy. It needs to be taken care of. So this, this a theological belief that somehow God is working this into now. Also, we, we should look at, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, let's look at that. Uh, this is the ultimate. This is the one that all my Baptist friends throw out. They don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit anyway, but they throw this out to me all the time saying, well, you know, God doesn't always heal because sometimes, you know, you deserve stuff that comes upon you. And, you know. So uh, Paul here is talking in verse 7. Paul's talking about the thorn that he has in his flesh. Verse 7, To keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so people have identified this as a sickness, but... Clearly, the New Testament doesn't, doesn't tell us that this is a sickness. Some people have said, well, here Paul has received this thorn in the flesh, and because it's somehow in the flesh, uh, that this is now sickness that has come into his life. But it would, it would inform us if we look back into the Old Testament. Numbers 33, verse 55 tells us that 
there were going to be these people that are left around the Israelites who are going to harass them and so and that they are going to bother them and because the Israelites have been disobedient this group of people around them and so God call God calls them thorns in your side in numbers 33 he tells us these are thorns in your side in fact he calls these persecuting neighbors of Israel thorns in their side many times in Joshua 23 verse 13, and Ezekiel 28, verse 24, and Numbers 33, verse 55. So, so if you think of thorn in the side as a colloquial, 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 thank you, colloquial <laughs> expression, it would be kindred to us saying pain in the neck, right? That person's a pain in my neck, right? We don't think that they actually cause you pains in your neck, though they may, but we don't think that everyone who you say is a pain in the neck really causes you neck pain. We just know that you mean that they are somehow a thorn in your side. So now look at Paul's statement in light of the biblical evidence of what a thorn in the flesh is and, and say, recognize what it says. It says, to me, keep me from being conceited. For, uh, because of surpassing great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger in Satan, of Satan to torment me. And who is that? Some guy who's there who's a pain in the neck. Who is it? John Mark? Who is it? We don't know. You say, well, how do you know it's not sickness? Well, we don't know 100% that it's not sickness, but we can kind of get a little bit more understanding if we read verse 10. Because he says, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What he doesn't say is, I rejoice in viruses, colds, injuries, sickness, nothing like that. What he's talking about here. So, so we recognize that that. The new, all the verses that people use sometimes to say, oh, the, your, your sickness is going to make you sanctified are not biblical. There's not a biblical reason for God to send sickness to sanctify someone. Second, second thing is divine determinism. If God wants me well, then he'll make me well. Well, that kind of rules out the whole idea of prayer, doesn't it? I mean, prayer is pretty foundational in the New Testament. Don't, we shouldn't really have to talk about this too much. But if God wants me well, then I'll be well. And if he doesn't want me well, well, then I'll just be sick. And, uh, or maybe I'll even die. And then it'll be God's fault. Because God, well, th this is an un... There's no pa way pastorally you can minister to people. If your neighbor gets sick and you go over to them and you say, Hey, I see you're suffering. What'd you do? Right? It's immediately condemnation on them, right? So now, not only are they not feeling well, but, but now they have you to jump on them with the devil and to condemn them. But whose side does that put you on? God the healer or the devil the condemner? condemner? So now you've just joined forces with the underworld to, to trash your neighbor who's already suffering. What a loving saint you are. The whole idea of divine determinism that God always gets what He wants is clearly unbiblical because it says that God really wants, really desires, earnestly desires that all men would be saved. Right? Will all men be saved? Uh, will all men be saved? 
No, not all men will be saved. So God clearly doesn't get his way. We have a hard time with that. We just sang, Sovereign, you are still sovereign, right? What does that mean that God is sovereign? That he rules over everything, that he knows everything in his, that's happening in his kingdom, that he's the ruler over all that. Could God stop sickness? Undoubtedly, God could put a halt to sickness, right? But he has somehow limited his sovereignty so that he has limited his sovereignty so that people will, will have, have behave in a certain way, who behave in a certain way, will uh, find themselves uh, with some kind of illness. Like if you run around naked in all the rain this, this November, then you will probably catch a cold. I don't know why. It's because you're, you're, you're not treating your body well. If you eat poorly, you live on a diet strictly of Cheetos, you will probably get some horrible you know, stomach ulcer because you're living off of powdered cheese that's not really even cheese. So, so if, if, you, if you don't listen to the rules, there are things that will happen to you, right? Just, it's just we, we understand that to be the fact. We understand that's the way it works in the world. And so it's not the fact that God wants you to have that ulcer. It's the fact that you eat junk, right? I often look at the mirror and say, God didn't make me fat. When I was young, I was thin. Somebody give the glory to the Lord. You remember when you were thin when you were young, right? But then the Lord blessed you and 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 you you kept getting blessed, right? You got blessed in your thighs and blessed in your buttocks and blessed in your belly. You got blessed all over the place. You are a full gospel believer. You've been blessed. See, the idea that sovereignty would determine, you know, the, the, the Puritans, the Puritans refused to take any kind of inoculation or refused to, to uh, any kind of... Uh, of uh, exposure to s- smallpox because they believe that you should just go about your life and if you get the pox and you die, then that's God's will. And you wouldn't want to thwart God's will by taking an inoculation or getting yourself better. Well, see, that's a, that's a view that God always gets His way. But clearly, that's not what the Scripture teaches. Scripture doesn't teach that God always gets His way. God doesn't go yippee at the end of every day. There are days when God weeps. He weeps over all the different things that are happening in our world that aren't pleasing to Him. Uh, now this is also really problematic if you're trying to minister to your neighbor because let's say you're ministering to the mother of a severely sick son and he dies. You know, I do a lot of funerals and so... I hear people say stupid things, Christians who say stupid things. Well, he, God just needed another angel. Who did God kill to make the first angels? He didn't need to kill anybody. When you die, you don't become an angel. That's just bad theology. You, know? you don't have little cherubic wings. and That's, that's not what happens. So, we look at the person who's lost their loved one, and we say we were trying so desperately to comfort them with some kind of knowledge, even though we, we are at a, a loss. We don't have knowledge. 
of what's going. We don't understand why we fasted and prayed and that, that, that didn't happen. We don't understand why that, that, that didn't happen, why your son died now. But then we say to them, well, the Lord took your son. So now God becomes a child snatcher. It's all because we don't know how to respond to it. We understand. In fact, people have said to me, well, the Lord took my son. Oh, hon, the Lord didn't take your son. That disease took your son. The Lord did receive your son, though, when he passed from this life into the next life. And we thank God for that. But it's a different, different and that's why I always tell people, we don't take an offering. If we had to, we'd probably have to take it at gunpoint if we had to take an offering for, you know, well, we would receive another one. We're always open to that. Right? So, so the, Lord, the Lord in His, His way, has, we, have to, we have to speak correctly. I know it seems like, it seems like it's, a, it's a, almost a, a bondage to your words, but it's, it's, it's not that. It's just communicating correctly what we believe about God. And also, it can build resentment in people, you know. We should pray for people to be sick, 100%, or for people who are sick to be 100% healed, even though prayer, just like medicine, doesn't have a 100% guarantee. Well, let me repeat that. That was so good, i got to read it again. We should be free to pray for the sick, even though prayer, like medicine, does not guarantee 100% healing. I hear Christians who say, well, I prayed for this one and they didn't get healed and I prayed for that one. I'm just not going to pray for the sick anymore. These same people who when the doctor gives them medication and it doesn't uh, fix their cold or heal their you know, runny nose, then they're more than happy to switch to a different medication or try something else. I confess to you today that I will be fighting disease until the day I die. That's just what we do. Our bodies are designed to do that. They have little systems in there that are, just keep fighting. And of course, there's, you know, we have to understand that there's a role of faith. That's, Jesus said, according to the way that you believe, be it done unto you, that there's a role of faith. Mark chapter 6, verse 5 tells us that, that Jesus could not do many miracles in that place because their faith was limited in there because they, they knew Jesus too well. And so, because they, and so that faith, limited the ability for Jesus to, uh, to work in there. So it seems to me that Jesus, it's pretty fair to say in the Bible that Jesus has to have an atmosphere of faith in order to be doing the miracles that he wants to do in our lives. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 15, tells us that this woman had an issue of blood and that she reached out to Jesus and she got healed. And, and, and Jesus calls her this woman whom Satan has bound. You know, Jesus never says about somebody, oh, don't pray for him. God's teaching him a lesson. That's not what happens. Jesus looks at every person who's sick as a victim of the circumstance that he's in, but also as someone who's being bound up and being attacked by Satan. And so when we look at sickness as something, as an ally, how, how horrible is that? Or as though God has willed it. See, it's very comfortable for us to do that because if God wills it, this is, what, this is what Islam believes, to be quite honest with you. That if you're sick, somehow you deserve it. You don't know what you, I don't know what you did, but buddy, you must have ticked God off. And so what does that mean? What, what do I have to do? Well, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to do jack diddly squat 
to help you out because I've relieved myself of the responsibility to be loving and to help you and to work for healing in you if, if I just recognize that that's God's will for their life. Then I would want to go do against, because I'm a good guy, I wouldn't want to go against God's will. So then we recognize the poisonous thought of this divine determinism. Then we get to another one. This one we find more often here in the church. In the past, there's been people who have refused medical treatment as if the only kind of healing there could possibly be was divine healing. As if, and, and so it always makes the papers every once in a while, every you know, 10, 20 years, or somebody who, whose kid could have been healed from some small germ, but he chose to stand on his faith and let his child die rather than take him to get medical attention. And you say, well, if you believe in divine healing, shouldn't you just ignore all the doctors? Well, no. Or if you're getting prayed for and you're taking medication, somebody prays for you, shouldn't you just, by faith, just quit all your medication? Well, you better have a word from God, otherwise you're going to end up in the hospital with, with further issues. And it doesn't give God glory to say that so-and-so from such-and-such a church ignored the, the, the will and, the, and, the, and the, the advice of the doctor in order to bring that person into a place of, of, uh, of healing, and then they die. That, that doesn't make any sense. So we see extremes in the faith healing movement sometimes. We see people who, who guilt themselves. It's true, I've been reading uh, recently some articles about people who, who, um, who doctors who have been working with the, the terminally sick, and as they're working with terminally sick people, they, the, the difference, the health benefits of a positive environment. And so um, that's absolutely true. And so and there's nothing more comforting to someone who's sick is then, then quoting the scripture to themselves and reminding themselves of the promise of God and, and claiming the promises of God. There's nothing, but to say to someone, oh, you have that because uh, you spoke that out, that gives your words miraculous strength. And if my words have miraculous strength to bring me whatever I want, then $10 million. $10 million, $10 million, $10 million, $10 million. But not a soul in here believes that I'm going to be buried in single dollar bills. Why? Because you know. But when it comes to our healing, we're afraid to say the word cancer. We're afraid to say words because we're afraid as if somehow it... Well, this is the same gobbledygook that Oprah would believe for a while. I don't know what she believes now, but she believed that somehow you sent out a vibe and the universe responded to you. Well, trust me, I've been sending out the vibe to the lotto and it hasn't come to my house. Now, there's, there's truth in the Word of God. And if we take the Word of God and begin to claim those promises that it warms our heart and gives us hope and joy and strength and gives us faith and renews our faith. Faith cometh by the hearing of the Word, right? Now, what the Scripture says. So by reciting those Scriptures over and over again to us, our faith begins to rise up and we begin to recognize who God is and what God can do. And we begin to... And the, and the great big giant problem begins to 
be diminished in our vision because we recognize how much bigger our God is than that particular issue. But the things, we can't be people who are, see, see I, got, I got saved and walked for a while in that, that movement where people were afraid to talk about how they felt. The scariest thing you could ever ask somebody in that movement, that, that hyper-faith movement, it was, hey, how you feeling? I'm healed in Jesus' name. No, but how's that, how's that cold you had last week? I don't have a cold. Never had a cold. Never. Aren't, you, aren't you now a liar? Right? Or they would say, I'm not sick, I just have symptoms. I just have symptoms. But those symptoms will kill you, buddy. You better watch out. Eat some soup, you know. See, we, we have a weird relationship with sickness. We, we, we don't really want to understand it. And, so we, and we do it all the time. And so we, we grab a hold to verses. Like, here's one that's always said. The, power, the tongue has the power of life and death, right? You hear it all the time, right? The, the tongue has the power of life and death. And somehow, somewhere, somebody told us that that means that whatever we say brings life or death to us. Let me, let me give you a little relaxation. That's not at all what that Scripture means, and anybody who tells you that's what that Scripture means doesn't know the Word of God from anything. That has to do with if you walk into your boss tomorrow and you don't mind your tongue when you're aggravated, and then you walk in and you, you tell them what you really think. Your tongue now has the power of life and death, or in this case, employment and unemployment. That's what that Scripture means. It literally means that. It says that if you, if you speak the right words, you'll eat the fruit of those words. Again, what a wonderful dress you're wearing today, Mrs. Cleaver. Right? Right? If you speak the, the right words, if you learn how to butter the bread, you'll be able to eat from the fruit of that. The Bible talks about that. There's no magical, no magical dust that comes on your tongue when you speak the Word of God. In fact, let me be honest, the only reason the Word means anything when it comes off your lip is if you believe it in your heart. Because if you believe it in your heart, then the word means something. Otherwise, the devil would be the most faithful, faith-filled person in the universe. Because he knows the word of God. Right? But, he, but that's not what happens. So we recognize, oh, so me speak. Now, I'm not saying you should walk around speaking a bunch of negative junk to everybody. Nobody wants, you won't have any friends. Forget being spiritual. People say, here they come. Let's go this way. No. If, 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 if you are, are uh, uh, going through a difficulty, going through, I totally get you speaking promises from the Word. They only mean something because they're promises from the Word. Right? See, I know in whom I have believed, it says. It doesn't say, I know what I said yesterday. Because, and so there's power in understanding that the promises, if I make a promise to my children, if I say, hey, I'm going to take you all out to dinner, this is just for, for uh, giggles here tonight, illustration. If I say, I'm taking you all out for a steak, 
The power of that promise is no good unless the person who promised it can afford the stake. Right? Otherwise, we'll just have disappointed hearts. In the same way, when we claim the promise, I'm claiming the promise, but I'm reminding myself that it's my God that, that gave me that promise. And what we have with this, this idea of a faith formula, sometimes people will get into this too where they believe, all I have to do is confess my sins and then, and then uh, check all the boxes. You know, check all, I confess my sins and I... I, so I'm sinless now because I've just asked for forgiveness and I haven't had enough time to sin. So, Father, forgive me for everything, 100% carte blanche. Forgive me, right? Now you're like, okay, now I'm clean before the Lord. And then you step into the presence of the Lord and say, Lord, I just want to pray this prayer and I, 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 I want you to heal me from my sickness. We check that box because we always remind God of His Word. I'm not sure why we think somehow He doesn't remember His Word. He wrote the Word, but whatever. Because, Lord, You said that You would be my healing, right? We remind Him of His Word. That's mostly for us, but we make it for Him. Check that box. And then we check the final box. In Jesus' name. Or if you're an evangelist, you say, In Jesus' name, right? As if... Now, we say in Jesus' name as if it's just saying Jesus' name. But in Jesus' name means I'm asking in Christ's name. I'm coming as if it was Jesus Himself asking you for this, Father. I'm coming to you, Father God, and I'm asking you this because this is how Jesus will get the most glory. There's a lot of prayers that wouldn't be prayed if we, if we knew in Jesus' name meant that Jesus would get glory through this. And so as we climb through, through the, the process, we have to kind of recognize there's, there's different issues that we're facing in the in the the healing process. I want this place to be a place where people who come in, we don't have to tell them, watch what you say. Be careful. Don't be negative. Oh, don't have a negative confession. Oh, oh, you need to know these Bible verses by heart. Well, no wonder you're sick because you don't know the Bible verses. That's not how Jesus ministered. Jesus didn't have a bunch of anxious weirdos that were running around behind Him. He learned how to set people free. With it. And so that's the whole purpose of the healing ministry of the church is to bring people in and find them freedom so they, they can come in Jesus' name and, and, uh, and do that. Another, oh, I've got to talk about this one because this is my pet peeve. Romans chapter 4, verse 17, says that God, speaking about Abraham, is that Abraham believed that God was a God who called things that were not as though they were. Right? As if there was mighty power in God's words to call things that are not as though they were. But, but, we need to recognize that that's God that does that. The example of faith in Romans 4 is not God. The example of faith is Abraham. And it's written to us to give us an example of faith. And it's not, Abraham wasn't walking around saying, promised land, promised land, promised land. That's not what he was doing. He was believing the God who made the promise to him. Right? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right? And so we, I, I, I don't know how we major in the minor on that passage of Scripture that we're always... We're always diddling with the, the Scripture so that it puts more responsibility on us. My goodness, if all that responsibility relies upon us, then we're really in, we're really in trouble. 
In fact, the Bible tells us that all of humanity is given over to the bondage of decay. Romans 8.21 See, God is a person, not a power. False teaching tells us that God is a power and all you have to do is align your words and get things all together and then you can plug into the power of God and the, power, the, the God of power will flow through your life. But that's not exactly how it works. God is a person who has a will, who has compassion and love. And we come to Him as a person. God has a will and God's will can be changed. Moses found this out. Hezekiah found this out. You're going to die, buddy. And after prayer, it was decided, we're going to give you more time to live. Well, knowing the truth of that is, is, it's not just tapping in some power. It's speaking to an almighty God who hears and is compassionate and loving to you. And so recognizing that God has a person, is a person, is key. And of course, we live in a secular age. So the challenge to, to being a church body that ministers healing to people is to recognize that people have been raised in our Western world without a view, thinking that somehow the universe is closed and God didn't allow a back door into the universe where he can perform miracles. Today I was reading a, a list of 10 or 20 different celebrities that are all atheists. saw it on Facebook. I just found it interesting that people would, would go all out to declare their lack of faith. And, and to me, that, that is it's strange. But, to, but I recognize that's the world we live in. It embraces a, a godless universe. It embraces a universe that is closed. Sometimes, I, so I really believe that if God does a miracle... It can be medically verified. That can't always be medically verified because sometimes the doctor won't say miracle. I don't know a doctor that says miracle. But I know they use words like misdiagnosed. Somebody made a mistake and now your tumor's gone. I know God has done that in the past when we've prayed as a, as a body of people. Sometimes we... we pit ourselves against the doctors. When the reality is the whole doctoring gig came out of the church. And the doctoring gig came out of the church so that we could work healing for people in whatever way, whatever capacity, that God would somehow do the miraculous. Remember the verse we read at the beginning. Paul comes with the idea that the kingdom of God is not just talk but it's about power, the release of power. That's how Paul went in and established churches. He went in with the expectation that God was going to back up his word. In fact, whenever we go start churches, we do it exactly the opposite way. We try with very polished sermons to speak and mesmerize people so that they will respond emotionally to the gospel and give their life to Jesus. And we can have check off the number of salvations we had in the year as Pat makes us feel really good as pastors. But the reality of it is, the real reality of it is, it's what the Holy Spirit does in people's lives. 
That's why sometimes we don't even give an altar call here at this church because we recognize the Holy Spirit does stuff in you while you're thinking. Sometimes the Holy Spirit wants you just to mull something over and be haunted by a message all week long. Sometimes we have altars that are full, but sometimes the Holy Spirit just work in your life and so you can sit there and think about what it is that God wants to do in your life. It's not always the same. It's not the same thing everywhere we go. All that being said, you're at Christian Life Center. Christian Life Center is the place where we send people to different countries around the globe and we see people healed as we go out and we see people that we're praying for see answers to prayer and the deaf have found their hearing in our in our meetings overseas. And we have seen great and mighty and powerful things in our prayer times. But the key is for us to stay as close to this book as we possibly can. To stay away from all the conjectures, all the know-it-alls, all the guys who who think they have the newest thing. There's nothing new under the sun. There's really nothing new under the sun. This is our total dependency. We're dependent upon our hope in the God who gave us these promises. And we can minister to people who are broken and wounded and, and hurting in their body. We can minister to them all of our life and really be, make, make a world difference in the world that we live in. For us to be a New Testament church, we have to step out and pray for the sick and so that we have to develop some kind of a, a comfort in stepping out in faith. What's required of us is what one fellow called a a conscious and consistent recommitment to the Word of God and its view of reality. We have to recognize that there is a devil and that he does try to afflict people with illness. To do anything else is to have our lives be conformed to the world. And the Bible says very clearly, do not be conformed to this world. So if we're going to be a New Testament church, we're going to have to be people who know how to pray for the sick. So for the next couple of weeks, I want to talk about that. Is it okay if we do that? Let's pray right now. Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope you were blessed by it. If there's anything that we can do to help you further your relationship with God, we would love to be a part of it. You can contact us through our website, www.berwinag.org. Thank you, and God bless.